Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is... ...is Thursday, January 21st, 2016. Stephen Wright, Connecticut attorney, joins me tonight. And by the way, lest I forget to give out his number, it's 203-261-3050. My phone continues to ring off the hook even more this week as I'm being called by attorneys across the country seeking guidance on rescission and various elements that we're going to be talking about tonight. Tonight, or for those of you who are not on the East Coast, this this afternoon then, Steve and I will be discussing and allowing time for questions in a 45-minute broadcast instead of a 30-minute broadcast. The topics are rescission, the time limits for sending the rescission, recording the rescission, the time limits and rules restricting the right of so-called lenders or creditors for filing anything that challenges the effect of the rescission, standing, drilling down on standing, and driving down uh, beyond standing. Um, Also, we might hit on the time limits for what you can do and when you can do it in terms of enforcing the rescission, which requires no lawsuit to be effective, but may require a lawsuit to get a result that you want, like clear title. We'll also be covering judicial notice of the trust instrument, if we can, and the difference between the strategy of trying to enforce the PSA, the pooling and servicing agreement, which most courts are now saying you can't do, versus the strategy of attacking whether the Remick Trust ever purchased the loan and therefore whether the alleged trustee or servicer has any relationship to the loan. If the loan, if the trust doesn't own the debt, then the trustee and servicer are just padding. They're meaningless because all of their powers derive from the trust through the trust instrument. Last week I said that judges are ignoring the menu entirely by issuing rulings in favor of an imaginary plaintiff in an imaginary lawsuit. My blog post today and in the past few days and the coming days 
explain that in more detail, but suffice it to say that the homeowner's motion to dismiss the foreclosure for lack of subject matter jurisdiction after rescission has become effective, and it's become effective by way of mailing, and that's all that is required. The homeowner's motion to dismiss the foreclosure for lack of subject matter jurisdiction since the note and mortgage don't exist anymore, and lack of personal jurisdiction since the parties who attempted the foreclosure are using void instruments and therefore they have no standing anymore, uh, even if they had standing, which is unlikely. So if they're relying on holding void instruments, that motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction should always be granted. And the motion to strike or in opposition to that motion to dismiss from the banks should always be denied unless the real creditor has filed a lawsuit alleging facts that support the credit standing, legal standing, which means that they are truly an injured party arising out of the loan, the existence of the rescission, and that it is effective unless uh, otherwise there's no pre present controversy. So if they don't allege standing and allege the existence of the rescission and allege that it is effective, they're not presenting the court with a present controversy, and therefore there's no jurisdiction. And the grounds for asking that the court change the situation by vacating the rescission as defective should be pled. What the courts are doing is pretending that such a lawsuit from the banks exists and then ruling on what they would theorize would be the outcome of such a lawsuit because it is obvious to them that the Taylor rescission statute is wrong. So they are ruling on the outcome of a non-existent lawsuit from a non-existent real creditor, non-existent in terms of it not being in the court record, filed by parties who are not even present in the courtroom where the foreclosure litigation is taking place. Judges need to be challenged and reminded that they have no choice here. The lower courts, both state and federal, cannot overrule the Supreme Court of the United States. They can't overrule Congress, and they can't overrule the executive branch of government, all of whom unanimously state that the loan contract, if it ever existed, is canceled. The note is void and the mortgage is void once the rescission is mailed. It's three to one. The three branches of the federal government against a single judge who doesn't like what the three are saying. That's no excuse for violating the instructions stated by a unanimous Supreme Court one year ago in Jessenowski versus Countrywide and the instructions in the statute that as a matter of law, 
not subject to interpretation, and the instructions issued by in Reg Z, the note and mortgage are void. The banks are running the clock to get as many foreclosures as possible before the rescission issue is again put to bed, possibly by the Supreme Court, uh, possibly by the Circuit Courts of Appeal, but this time, um, and possibly in the state courts, uh, this time it won't be so many years. The, the choice is extremely clear. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, which you'll be hearing more about later, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show and my other work that I do for free for you on the blog has a value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And if you're looking for active assistance, then call our numbers and schedule a consult, a review, or both with me or one of the many other lawyers that are now joining with me. You can also get a full report on title and securitization through us if you haven't already done it through somebody else, along with a commentary on how it applies to your case subject to review of your attorney. Living Lies, with 11 million visits, number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and student loans. And, of course, on the strategies that include uh, many of the things we've discussed for years on foreclosure defense and which we've discuss been discussing for the last year on rescission. Our mission is to share as much free information as we can to help homeowners, their lawyers, other consumers who find that in addition to the house or car or TV, they bought a very complicated financial product. We are exceeding in our mission as more and more lawyers across the country smell blood in the water and are getting results as they realize that there is a winning strategy in both foreclosure defense and rescission. There is gold in all those so-called bank errors that I have said from the beginning were intentional. I know how they work. Long ago, I was one of the people on Wall Street that kind of seeded the land for what eventually turned out to be a false securitization or derivative market. Let me remind my listeners here that nothing stops a foreclosure except a court order. No letter, no pleading, or anything else will stop the foreclosure from proceeding or stop the forced sale of the property. In bankruptcy, that court order is automatically issued from the federal bankruptcy court 
as soon as the bankruptcy is filed. And the same thing applies to rescissions, except that it is reversed. The court is not allowed, which means it is violating the law, if it chooses to ignore a rescission. The rescission is a legal doc, uh, document that is effective by operation of law, exact same treatment as a court order. The court may not rule on foreclosures or on anything relating to the note or mortgage without going step by step through the Teeler rescission statute and as case law throughout American jurisprudence has stated, you start with the express wording of the statute, which the Supreme Court says is also where you end. Just go step by step through the Teeler rescission statute. Tonight we're joined once again, and thankfully, uh, by Stephen Wright of the Wright Law Firm in Monroe, Connecticut. And as I said before, his telephone number is 203-261-3050. And uh, uh, well, his... Uh, certainly my pleasure, is, yeah. Say again, Steve? I say this is certainly my pleasure to join you, and uh, I do uh, commend you for all of the uh, people that you have educated on this uh, fiasco that has uh, presented itself upon the courts and us uh, with this mortgage uh, foreclosure. Um, I just want to, you know, pick up on uh, what you said about these trusts. Um, you know, I've had courts tell me they take judicial notice of these trusts, I guess supposedly because they're somehow filed with the uh, SEC. Um, but um, they don't exist. And, um I think if you're going to drill down on it, you got to do it well and get a, a you know, a, a financial audit of the of the note and the trust and, and point out all the defects. And, um, you know, I was very disappointed when the uh, appellate division of the New York uh, courts, the highest court in New York, decided that uh, that these these uh, <clears throat> missteps in the trust about putting the document, you know, putting the loan in there and, and the trustee doing things that he's not allowed to do under the trust were voidable and not void, even though the statute seems to say they're void. Maybe they're void to some people, not others. But um, I don't think you can take for granted these trusts. I mean, challenge, you know, if you get bumped uh, by somebody at a stoplight, I mean, you got a right to know everything about the person. Uh, who hit you, and they got everything to know about you that you hit them. So don't don't let the, you know, the the trust is a fiction. So by nature, it should be attacked. And um, but do a good I job at it. I mean, really go after it. I I, th I think the problem. I'd like your comment on what I'm about to say. I think the problem is that the sheer scope of the fraud is essentially unimaginable and that judges just don't believe that everybody in front of them is part of a loan contract that doesn't exist. Yeah, well, it's a big charade, and they can't admit that because it would, you know, um, affect the value of what they're doing, but uh, that's what it is. I mean, 
And, um, you know, they may not like it and they may not agree with you, but get the evidence on and um, show that it just, just didn't happen and see what, see what, See what happens with it down the road. Appeal it and let them say that they're okay. And uh, if that's the way it's going to go, it's going to it's going to the ramifications are going to be pretty big in the future when this kind of stuff is when you sanction this kind of skullduggery. Well, it's you know it's getting worse than that now on the issue of rescission, where you have a number of judges that are violating the express instructions from the Supreme Court. Yeah, and that's because they, you know, they've got to read. I mean, I'm going to read from a, an opinion uh, that says, you know, the United States Supreme Court applies, applies a rule of federal law to the parties before, and that rule is controlling interpretation of federal law and must be given full retroactive effect in all cases, open on direct review. And, you know, that's the bottom line. So, like it or not, I only see the only way that's going to change would be legislatively. I mean, they're reading from a statute, and uh, courts don't write statutes. They interpret them. And uh, this one I, don't th I don't think we're going to uh, – well, who knows? Somebody might try to pass a statute that applies retroactively and would interfere with <clears throat> rescind, but – yeah, I don't uh, think they I, will, though, because when you look behind the reason why this disclosure was required, it's so that the borrower can be educated on those precious few rights that he has or she has under the loan documents. And without making those disclosures under truth and lending, the, the borrower is left in the dark. And that's it would be hard to, un, to unwrap that. That, that. that, to me, is a laudable policy uh, prerogative. Well... Yes, and I mean the whole reason why the Truth in Lending Act was passed 50 years ago was because Congress came to a couple of conclusions. One is banks can't be trusted to do the right thing. And the second thing was that they had a choice. Either set up another mega agency like the IRS to monitor every it would be larger than the IRS, to monitor every loan transaction, you know, that was bigger than 50 bucks or something, uh, or pass a statute like 15 U.S.C. 1635 that punishes a lender when they get caught by the borrower for not doing things properly. And, and then ignoring the opportunity to correct it. Right. Yeah. And so I, when you, you look know, at it that way, it's not that harsh a remedy. There's uh, plenty of examples no, of that in the law. Theoretically, I, they could still have they they could still have received at least the principal back. But the way they're playing it is an all-or-nothing strategy because, probably because they can't file that lawsuit that I was talking about where they make allegations and prove standing without the use of the note and mortgage, which they can't use 
because the note is void and the mortgage is void because of the rescission. You know, and you bring up a good point. You know, we were talking about it the other day, um, but uh, if you could just expand a little bit on it, because I think it's very relevant. Um, none of these uh, plaintiffs that bring the foreclosure actions or none of these trusts ever claim to be a holder in due course. And you would think by the mere nature of the transaction that they would have a holder in due course status, particularly since they're supposedly acquiring it immediately after it's made. They're paying good value. There's no default. There's no knowledge of defenses. But they never do. And I I think, you know, it's worth talking about that um, as to why they don't, because I think therein lies the the fallacy of what they're doing. Well, I'll tell you why they don't, if you're asking. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, what the investment banks did was something that was unthinkable. But they thought of it, and then they did it. Uh, normally, the investment banks underwrite the offering of securities from either a new or existing entity which is either an initial public offering or a secondary offering. And the way that works is they get a fee for doing that. And assuming they're successful in selling the securities, they pull their fee out of that, and then they give the balance to the business whose securities they're offering. A pretty clean transaction, uh, at least by Wall Street standards. Um, but what they did here was they created their own entities on paper, which are these trusts, and they they did cause the trusts to issue securities that were being sold as an initial public offering, an IPO. And the offering was to qualified investors, which were pension funds and things like that, uh, because they managed to get the insurance companies, et cetera, to regard it as, uh, and rating agencies as regarded as AAA quality, which is a whole other story we won't get into tonight. So they, the, the, Investment house themselves create, in essence, a fully controlled entity, which is the Remick Trust, which exists on paper, and they make that entity, the investment bank, makes that entity issue the what are referred to as mortgage-backed securities, but which are, in fact, neither mortgage-backed nor securities. Um And the pension fund buys it, and all the pension funds buy it, and the investment bank takes in that money, but but in the case of the remic trusts, they never give the money to the trust. So now you have investors, pension funds, whose sole purpose in giving the money was to have the money managed in the Remick Trust, whose sole purpose was to fund the acquisition or origination of loans. 
The trust can't do it because it doesn't have the money. No, and it also creates other, I mean, all the investors, and that's pretty much the, the nuts and bolts of the investor suits that are so successful. But, you know, when they don't put the loans in on time, they don't follow the rules, they lose all the benefits of the uh, IRS, uh, you know, the tax breaks. And, you know, I don't know how that's squaring up with things. But uh, Well, the IRS keeps backpedaling on that and giving them more time. Well, so, the rules are clear, so I don't know how the, how the hell they're doing that. But Well, we did a lot of things out of panic in 2007, 8, and 9. Uh, you had two presidents that didn't have a clue about finance or what was really happening. And the banks basically uh, cried wolf, saying that they were losing money when, in fact, what they were trying to do was make even more money because they were betting against the very securities that they were selling. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, yeah. <clears throat> so let's let's move it along a little bit because yeah. I, I want to talk about the time frame. Um, let's talk about the rescission, uh, the deal right here now. I'm uh, I, I've got kind of an open-ended question because I'm I'm look I get the mail from all over the country too and I'm looking at a uh, Vermont piece of mail and he's um, he's directing his uh, attention to a court order which required the bank to produce in litigation documents similar to what would be required under 1635. And they didn't do it, and the court noted it. And uh, now he's sent rescission letters out and filed an affidavit on the deed records. So what do you think of that, Neil? I I think if he sent the rescission uh, letter out, there's there's nothing to think about. The statute says... Yeah, no, he sent out the request for production of documents in the litigation that asked for the same thing. They didn't do it, and then he sent a rescission letter out, and then he's got support of a court order saying that the bank didn't comply either. So I mean, right. that leads and to another question. Should everybody be opening up their loan packages back from 2008, 2007, or before then, and, and yes. seeing whether or not that, that information that they were required to be given was given, and if not, say it's not and see what happens? Almost all of them contain basic misinformation. Right. I mean, the point, one of the major points of the Truth in Lending Act when it was passed 50 years ago was that every borrower should know who they're doing business with and should have a choice because Congress wanted that kind of checks and balances where if you've got a rogue bank, the borrowers will avoid doing business with them. Yeah, Congress and, also wanted everybody to know the cost of money too. When you look at those damn things and see what it costs you to borrow this money for thirty years, it's a, it's a shocker. But um, so you're saying if somebody went back and looked at their loan package from 2005 and noticed that it didn't have the documents that were required to be disclosed, um, if he sends off, he or she sends off a rescission letter now, what, what's his remedy? Well, 
the the statute says that any rescission letter, even one that is disputable, every rescission letter uh, is effective as of the date of mailing and voids the note and voids the mortgage. And Justice Scalia said, and I quote, the statute makes no distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. So this was, in fact, debated back when the statute was passed, and the whole point was not to give any opportunity to the bank to stonewall the rescission. They either comply or they sue to establish the fact that the rescission was defective in some way. And they have to do all of that, comply or sue, within the 20 days allowed by the statute. And that's what the statute says. So, the so uh, what you're saying is, and I agree with you, is that everybody should open up their loan package that they got from their lawyer and see whether or not, or have a lawyer look and see whether or not the information in there complies with the Truth in Lending Law and Regulation Z. <coughs> if it doesn't, I would ship off a rescission letter, even I, I, beyond the further, three years. I'd go further than that and simply say that if there's any evidence that they did not comply for example, with disclosing who the real lender was, mm-hmm. uh, that one of two things are true. Either there is no loan contract between the homeowner and the the chain of companies that he's facing, um, or uh, it should be rescinded and if something has to be filed in court to enforce the rescission, the alternative count should be uh, uh, if for any reason the court finds a basis to vacate the rescission, then we're saying that as a result of the non-disclosure, there was no loan contract. And if there was no loan contract, of course, there's nothing to rescind but there's also no note and mortgage that's valid coming out of that loan contract. And so in, in uh, I mean, my, my surveys indicate that some 90%, might be as low as 80%, uh, of, of all mortgages violated Reg Z as predatory per se loans because they will table funding 80 to 90% of the loans. The, the, whether it was a bank or some thinly capitalized originator or whatever, they were taking money out of a pool that the investment bank had stolen from the investors and they were loaning that money to the homeowner and not protecting the investors who should have received a note and mortgage. Mm. <clears throat> so either either the rescission 
either the rescission makes the note and mortgage void or the failure to consummate the transaction because of lack of consideration with these people that are in the chain that are trying to foreclose, lack of consummation with them would uh, achieve essentially the same result. The note and mortgage should never have been released from the closing table, and much less recorded. So the 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 ultimate result would be disgorgement of all the money that was ever paid to them, and perhaps all the money that was paid to third parties, just like the rescission statute says. Um, cancellation of the note, release of the encumbrance, uh, end of story, because... They get back the dough you took. Right. Yeah. You know, so, right. I mean, so that's that's really something that you're telling your audience. I mean, everybody should look at their loan package and make the claim, if it's valid, that you did not get the proper disclosures when you closed that loan. And Neil's right, most of them, you're right most of the time. And look, if you're wrong, the bank has 20 days to cure that. <clears throat> they can send you the stuff that, that that's supposed to have been sent. And presumably that knocks your rescission case out, but you'll never see that. Well, I don't, so, think, I, mean, I don't think they can cure it and then claim that the rescission is ineffective. I think that they they might try to cure it, and then file the lawsuit that's required by the statute uh, to vacate the rescission. And based on equitable principles, they would probably win. But they, I don't think they can cure this because I, in, in, what was done with the money and the documents was that they were both put in like a food processor. And I don't think... Anybody can identify with certainty who the creditor uh, is in any individual loan because all the money from all the investors was commingled in a single slush fund. And all the data points on all of the alleged loans were also commingled uh, in... Uh, in terms of computer spreadsheets. And those data points were changed many times, uh, a fair percentage, looks like 30 or 40% of the time. Um, they changed the date and some other minor things about the loan so that it would look like a new loan and they could sell it again. Um, and Unbelievable. Of course, they sold it again when they were uh, doing credit default swaps, which was in actuality a sale of a group of loans and a variety of other instruments that audience with. So let's let's go over uh, the issues that, and, and you kind of brought up the first one. Uh, when do you send the rescission? You send the rescission as soon as you know you have grounds to do so. Yep. Um, and 
the statute says that your right to rescind expires three years from the date of consummation. But as I just explained, the date of consummation, unless you admit when it was, the date of consummation is a question of fact that can only be brought up in that lawsuit that has to be brought by the bank. And they can't allege it, and they can't prove it, because they don't have access, in most cases, to uh, uh, to the actual money trail. And even if they did have access, they don't want to show it, because it will show how much was being stolen. You have to realize that out of all the money that the investors gave the investment bank, the investment bank only loaned as much of the money as was necessary to cover their tracks and make it appear as though securitization of loans was happening when it wasn't. So the three-year issue is a matter for dispute if the bank wants to raise it, and if it wants to raise it, it has to file a lawsuit. <clears throat> I'm if saying, it has to file that lawsuit within that 20 days, you can't come back and raise that when you file your lawsuit beyond the 20 days. And and there's a very simple reason for that. If if any other in, so-called interpretation would be rewording the statute, which the Supreme Court said you can't do. The wording in the statute is that the rescission is effective, whether it's disputable or not, on the day of mailing. If it became true that the banks could raise their so-called defense at any time, then the rescission would not be effective, except if they brought a lawsuit, which the Supreme Court has expressly stated is not necessary. So some of that is complicated, to, especially to lay people, but it's also complicated to lawyers, yeah. which is probably why I'm getting so many calls. So, um, okay, so you have a three-day rescission, which is a buyer's remorse period, and then you have three-year right of rescission, but that doesn't stop you from sending it because you don't know what the date of consummation was. You only know the date that you signed the documents. But you don't know when the funding occurred, and I can tell you from having interviewed many uh, closing agents that the actual funding of the loan doesn't take place until... Hours, days, sometimes weeks or months or years after the paper, the work is signed and after it's recorded. So consummation is not the day that you think. In most cases, it's a day that only the bank knows, and they may not even know. So. The three-year thing is a, an issue of fact that has to be litigated in court, and the only way it gets litigated in court is if the bank brings it up in a lawsuit 
and if they bring the lawsuit, you can defend against the lawsuit if they've blown the 20 days by saying they've blown the 20 days, the statute of limitations is up, they can't file that. So the the well, issue... I think that's all good stuff because I'll tell you what, I don't think the banking industry is geared up for this, or at least not now. And, well, um, this is such a better argument than standing, which only gets you a second round in the courthouse. Uh, this is a, uh, a a real remedy for homeowners with these vaporized notes that nobody can tell you where they are, who owns them, or what they belong to. And um, well, the most interesting thing about the note is the uh, study done by Catherine Ann Porter when she was at the University of Iowa. She's on the West Coast now. Uh, when she discovered, to her horror, that a minimum of 40% of all the notes were intentionally destroyed. And you have well, to right. And then they were, like, redone through some imaging. Right, by machinery. Throughout the country. Right, which is they were by and and you can buy those machines right off the uh, internet if you want. Which so, is you know real irony because all of this all of this upholding of these these uh, lawsuits uh, uh, find their uh, you know backing in you know Article Three of the Uniform Commercial Code and. Where in Article Three in the Uniform the Commercial Code does it talk about making new notes and and you know destroying the originals and I mean it's really kind of ripping open the law of commercial paper <clears throat> that I yeah the that conclusion I that I read and 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 that other people have reached is that um, all of those lost note cases that were filed were uh, filed because um, the note didn't exist. And then yeah. later, and then later they, uh, they refiled after a dismissal or something, they refiled the case and presto, they had the note. Well, that's probably because a black knight formerly known as LPS uh, uh, in Jacksonville uh, got their machinery running and recreated the note. And the machinery is so good that you could actually show that note to uh, the homeowner and without preparing the homeowner for testimony, the homeowner is going to say, yeah, that looks like the note. That looks like my signature. And, you know, the and, and if it... The flip side is that if the uh, judge um, uh, hears a, a borrower saying, well, I don't know if that's my signature, it could have been mechanically produced or whatever, the judge thinks that the uh, borrower is trying to pull a fast one. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but, you know, you could buy an Adobe program and you could pretty much blow those things up and they just fall to pieces after about five or six resolutions. So I mean, and then that's what I mean. You've got to go into the courthouse with a, you know, showing that the trust is, you know, garbage. Showing that the note might not be the original. I mean, show, they, they, it just, <clears throat> I just have a hard time believing that uh, 
if we continue to do that on a regular basis, uh, the judges will have to take a well, different look at this whole thing. I really do. I think they're good, decent, Sorry. honest people for the most part, and they're trying to I do have, what they think is the right thing. Here. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Uh want to have you back again. Thank you well, all for joining. My pleasure. And Steve's information is on the blog and on the link for this show. Neil, that's always Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.